following is by an anonymous author. Yesterday morning, the phone rang. An elderly lady in our congregation had died. And Dee was looking for volunteers to help prepare her body at 5.30 right after work. No time to equivocate, no time to postpone. I heard myself ask calmly how long the process usually takes. I reminded Dee I've never done this before, and then I said I'd meet her at the funeral home. I hung up the phone, not quite believing the conversation had been real. The steps of the process are simple. Wash hands thrice each, as in any ritual hand washing, and don gloves and aprons. Say a prayer asking the mate, the deceased, to forgive you for any inadvertent defenses or missteps committed during the tahara. Wash the body lovingly with warm cloths, de-glove, ritually wash hands again, glove up again, and wash the body with a constant stream of poured water, repeating, Tahorahi, she is pure. Dry her, dress her in hand-stitched white linen, trousers and undershirt and overshirt a tie around the waist. Sprinkle sand from the Mount of Olives on her eyes, then don the face cloth and the head covering and place her in a simple pine box on a white linen sheet and wrap the sheet over her before closing the box. It was strange seeing a body with no soul in it, stranger still to wash her, an act that seemed, that seemed impossibly intimate, but I was okay. I felt an outpouring of tenderness, occasionally giving in to the impulse to stroke her hair or her arm, thinking, it's okay, dear. We're here. You're okay. The four of us moved around the steel gurney like a team of surgeons, handing each other washcloths and towels, turning her body to wash and dry what we couldn't easily reach. Her hands were clenched, but her feet were beautiful and her round belly. A little awkwardly, we lifted her and placed her atop the white sheet we had laid over the plain pine box and wrapped the sheet over her, and then suddenly, out of the blue, I was shaking with silent tears. I leaned on the edge of the coffin of a woman I had never known and understood what we had done for her, and I wept and wept. The author is describing her first experience as part of a Hevra Kadisha, a holy society. These societies in which Jews care for each other from death until burial date back at least, until Talmud, at least until Talmud, to Talmudic times. We have evidence of them in 14th century Spain, in 17th century Prague, and in New York as early as 1785. This year, we at CBE are co-founding a Hever Kadisha, which means you can do this too. I imagine that some of you might be hesitant. Touching the dead body of a person you do not know, or maybe worse, a person you do know? Facing mortality up close? Theirs? Ours? Associating with death when every other force wants to turn us away? To shut it out, to hide from what's coming for us and everyone we know? Some of you know the name of what will kill you. Some of you have even been told approximately when you will die. You are the most awake among us. Forced out of pretending 
that this life has no end. The irony of the human condition, Ernest Becker writes in The Denial of Death, is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens it. And so we shrink from being fully alive. It is fateful and ironic how that lie dooms us to a life that is never really ours. We think that our denial of death is a form of embracing life. But our ancestors understood, as evidenced by this very day, which is meant to simulate the day of our deaths, that denial about death robs us of life. It steals our ability to make choices, not only about dying, but also about living. Today, this liturgy attempts to shake us out of that denial, to wake us up to how very limited our days are on this earth. 78 years, the average American lifespan is 4,000 weeks. From birth to death, 4,000 weeks, and it's over. Our souls will live on, I believe that. Judaism teaches that. But we're going to disappear from the world. All the magic in us, all the beauty, all the brilliance, all the utter uniqueness, the quirky way that's only us, will be gone from this world. Everything that hasn't yet been expressed, all the love that hasn't been given, all the tenderness, the kisses, the touch, the I'm sorry's, the I forgive you's, the I love you's. It's so hard to grasp, but it is true. Our situation is cruel. On the shortness of life, Roman philosopher Seneca said, this space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at an end just when they're getting ready to live. I learned this summer that you can buy a poster of your 4,000 weeks, each represented by a small square bubble arranged in a grid. Each row is a year, 52 bubbles across, and you can even give your birth date to the poster makers and it comes already filled in. <laughs> and then you, with black pen, continue to mark progress as you make your way through your weeks toward your inevitable death. I decided to get this poster, of course. <laughs> but I was surprised to find that as I entered my credit card number, my heart started racing. Did I really want this on my wall? Apparently, yes, I did. <laughs> so every day, I see a visual representation of how much of my life is already over and an estimate of how much more there is. Many of you know that my father died a year and a half ago. And you might also know that my sister made a beautiful film about his death. And she and my family are here tonight, and I'm so glad you're here. At first, I did not want this film to be made because it felt intensely private. In the film, you actually see my father die up close. I also knew that my dad's choice to end his life 
And my choice to be there by his side as his daughter and as his rabbi was in direct violation of Jewish law. Not just Orthodox law, but at the time, even the reform movement banned medical aid in dying. I knew it would catapult me into a visible position on an issue that I did not choose. I am no stranger to death. I confront death regularly by accompanying you through burying and grieving your loved ones. I am certain that my frequent encounters with death make my life immeasurably richer and more alive. And I often wish it for all of you. But it's another thing to be publicly associated as a rabbi with the choice to die. And now I'm a visible rabbinic representative of the right to medical aid in dying. You may remember that in January, I wrote to you about this, and I wrote a public piece in the foreword explaining how I came to the position that I hold. I received more than 100 responses at that time, all of them from readers who had faced the prolonged agony of a loved one at the end of life, whose mothers or fathers or spouses had wished for the option to hasten death. I heard from rabbis who praised my courage and admitted that they privately question Jewish law on this matter. Recently, the reform movement reversed its position on medical aid in dying. At the time of my father's death, the reform movement called it murder. But now a new brilliantly written, sweeping responsum directly overturns that position. Quoting Joseph Soloveitchik, the authors argue, law that does not draw from the wellsprings of tenderness is absolute wickedness. Drawing upon stories from the Hebrew Bible and the Talmud, the authors argue that we have precedent for taking action to end life in extreme cases. For example, King Saul, wounded and facing capture by the Philistine army, where all he could expect was pain and humiliation, took his own life. Rabbi Hanina, being tortured by the Romans, opted for a swifter death. And Rabbi Yochanan's emotional suffering was so intense that the rabbis intervened to end it. The authors of the responsum say, quote, the rabbis recognized that life is more than existence. These narratives demonstrate that they knew that a person in extremis may rationally and justifiably choose death over life, that a reasonable person may reach the point where they see that their life, as opposed to their existence, has ended, and that sometimes the greatest compassion one can receive is to be assisted in dying. The authors point out that the time span between the onset of illness and death in the rabbinic era was so dramatically different from our own that the law must be adjusted to bring tenderness to the reality that people face today. They quote the Rambam, our sages taught in Moed Katan five days and they died. This is the ordinary death of most people. Five days was the typical death. In other words, when Judaism banned aid in dying, it was in the context of a five day period. Another source, Evel Rabati, says that a death that takes longer than seven days is a de death, quote, of suffering. Now, thanks to modern medicine, most people live for months, years, decades with diseases that would have killed them in a week in Talmudic times, and sometimes with the suffering that such degeneration inflicts. The palliative care movement recognizes that, quote, unquote, total pain is not only physical, but psychological, social, and spiritual combined. Optimal pain relief, Dame Saunders, the founder of the hospice movement taught, is not possible if all dimensions are not addressed. 
As total pain increases, the patient experiences a severe loss of control over their life, and this in turn leads to further pain and despair. The reform movement authors conclude, in an era in which medical technology can prolong life to the point where a person's existence becomes torture to them, when refuat haguf, healing of the body, is no longer possible, we can, at least, support the choices of those individuals for whom death is refuat hanefesh, healing of the soul. Given that life is of supreme value in Judaism, given that we are never to cheapen life, these rabbis argue that when a person's total pain has transformed their life into mere existence, allowing them to end their existence is a form of honoring life. Of course, there's fear that these laws could accelerate a tendency we already have in this society to make the lives of disabled people disposable, to see our elders as a burden, to weigh life-saving medical procedures against a person's ability to pay. That is what Judaism finds terrifying and abhorrent. In fact, the authors of the Responsum only studied Canada's law, documenting its thorough protections against these dangers and warning that because we don't have guaranteed access to affordable health care in the United States, we can't be sure that a person isn't choosing death because of their financial situation or obstacles to getting the treatment that they need. 11 U.S. states have medical aid in dying laws. The Oregon law has been in effect since 1994, and there is no evidence that these laws are leading to a diminishment in the value of human life as seen through declining investment in health care, or that people are making the choice to die for the lack of that care. Instead, it is the absence of these laws that leads to a diminishment of the value of human life, as the last months or years are often marked by unnecessary suffering. The authors of the Reform Responsum raise a critical question that is simultaneously a condemnation of our country's values. This is the question that always emerges when we turn our attention to dying. How are we living? When we face our mortality, we are forced to confront the fact that we don't live as well as we could. We don't fully honor life. Our policies aim at maximizing existence, but notably dishonor life. We have built a medical system that tries to extend existence indefinitely, but frequently fails to care for the human lives that are in it. We are passing laws that force every fetus in, to be born into existence, whether or not its parents can or want to nurture its life. Imagine if instead, our society actually honored life through simple things like basic access to healthy food and clean water and safe housing and dignified work. And mental health care for teens and adults and communal solutions to loneliness and restorative justice. Can you imagine what honoring life could look like on a societal scale? As individuals, when we're actively in touch with the fact that we will die soon, we can begin to make choices that honor our lives. Oliver Berkman, the author of the book called 4,000 Weeks, is a time management consultant who is done with advising people about how to optimize their day, or cram as much as possible into an hour, or get to inbox zero. He became fed up with most time management conversation, which ignores that, in his words, we will all be dead any minute. 
At some level, Berkman concedes, time management is all life is. But he wants us to approach it in a way that recognizes, quote, the outrageous brevity and the shimmering possibility of our lives. Productivity, he says, only makes us feel busier, more anxious, and emptier. It just causes the conveyor belt to move faster. We set up impossible demands on our time, and then we berate ourselves for failing to meet those demands. Berkman wants us to see that our busyness is avoidance. We think that if we could just get enough work done, maybe we won't have to wonder whether it's healthy that so much of our self-worth comes from our work. If we keep rushing while distracting ourselves with our devices, maybe we can hold at bay the scary questions about what we're doing with our life and whether big changes are needed. He says, haste is universal because everyone is in flight from themselves. The more we try to master time, Berkman tells us, the more time masters us. When you confront that you'll never get it all done, you stop avoiding the painful reality that you have to make choices about your very limited time. And the truth is, we have limited control over the time we do have. Once we recognize our finitude, he promises, we'll experience relief. There is a feeling of timelessness, a feeling that there's enough of everything beyond time. It's what's called deep time. I have experienced this in meditation retreats and often on Yom Kippur afternoon when the whole world slows down and feels luminous and time is abundant. Have you ever felt this? Yes, there is FOMO, fear of missing out. Missing out on almost everything is guaranteed. Every decision we make means we're missing out on everything else. But also not making those decisions means we're missing out on everything else. We simply will not, no matter how efficient we are, eat all the foods, or visit all the countries, or achieve all the achievements, or meet all the people, or see all the movies, or read all the books, or dance all the dances. But we can live with intention. We can love well. We can achieve something. We can savor those things we do choose. We can express what most needs to be expressed, including, I'm sorry, including, I forgive you, including, I love you. We can set up advanced directives and arrangements for our deaths. We can engage in, pl engage in planned giving and write ethical wills, communicating our values with those who follow us. Although 10% of us will die suddenly without warning, 90% of us will have at least a brief time and possibly a very long time when we know that we're declining and can be conscious about dying. We can aim ourselves toward a mitayafa, a good or even beautiful death. And if we change the law in New York, we'll have the option to choose medical aid in dying. Not everyone will be part of our Hevra Kadisha at CBE, washing and accompanying members of our community when they die. But some will. Some will have the courage to touch death, to confront death face to face. What I can tell you 
from the screenings of the film that shows my father's death is that when we face dying, it opens up reservoirs of life within us. All the faces in the darkened theaters are glistening with tears. And afterward, the people come up to us and hold our hands and tell us how much they needed this film. You think witnessing death is gonna be unbearably sad, they say, but it's uplifting. It reminds us of what matters. It reminds us of love. It reminds us of how lucky we are to be alive. This is what awaits us if only we turn toward our limits, if only we turn toward our finitude, if only we turn toward our deaths. We will turn toward our lives. Gemar Khatima Tovah.